This episode of Vegan Snack Attack is brought to you by GoMexco Foods, who make some of the most delicious vegan candy bars you will ever have. It's all uh, rice milk chocolate, so it's not that bitter dark chocolate that you're probably used to having if you're vegan eating chocolate. Uh, I'm actually on the GoMexco Foods website, which is GoMexGoFoods.com, and I'm checking out where you can buy it. And I'm just going to go randomly select a state here in the United States. See, Oregon. Oregon. Plenty of places in Eugene. Uh, tons of places in Portland. Let's say you're in Hillsboro. You can go to Whole Foods there or New Seasons Market. Uh, let me just randomly scroll. Okay, in Rhode Island, there's plenty of places in Providence. Let's say you're in Newport. There's the A Market, Harvest Natural Foods. Uh, I'm just randomly scrolling down. Wisconsin. Got some places in Appleton. Uh, Milwaukee. Got a bunch. Internationally, wow, this is crazy. In Australia, there's a ton of places where you can get Go Max Go candy bars. Austria, we got a bunch. Uh, oh, I had no idea. Belgium. I was actually just in Belgium, uh, and you can get it there. I, I actually am not even going to take a attempt at uh, trying to pronounce this. Um, but yeah, tons of places in Canada. Long story short, you can get Go Max Go Foods candy bars almost anywhere in the world, uh, and I highly recommend giving it a try. You're going to be very happy that you did. And now, without any further ado, we have this next episode of Vegan Snack Attack with the people from the Master Food Preservers. Enjoy! If you're ever seeking for some grub that is vegan, but there's nothing new to try, or ideas have run Hello, everybody. This is Vegan Snack Attack. I'm John, and I'm here with two very, very special guests. I have Ernest Miller and Rose Lawrence, right? Yes, mm-hmm. and they are both part of a very special program, uh, specifically out here in, in Los Angeles, called the Master Preservers, right? Master Food Preservers. Master Food Preservers. Uh, can you tell me, just broad strokes, what is this program? I, I, I know very little about it. I heard about it, and I was like, oh my god, this sounds amazing, <laughs> but I only just know like the surface of, like, these are people who preserve food <laughs> and want to learn more about it. So, Ernest, you're the head instructor, right? Yes. So tell me a little bit about what this program is. Well, the Master Food Preserver Program is a program that started in the late 1970s but can trace its roots all the way back to uh, World War One or so. Mm-hmm. Uh, they're a group of volunteers with the University of California Cooperative Extension, uh, and we're part of the Los Angeles County Cooperative Extension. Every county in the state has a cooperative extension. And what we are, we're volunteers uh, who are trained in food preservation techniques, canning, pressure canning, freezing, drying, pickling, fermenting, curing, brewing, smoking, charcuterie, cheese making, long-term food storage, and emergency food preparedness. Gotcha. Uh, and uh, our role is to go out into the community, particularly into low-resource communities, mm-hmm. and teach people safe food preservation techniques so that they can save money, take advantage of their gardens, take advantage of the farmer's markets uh, using uh, time-tested uh, and scientifically tested uh, techniques. Wow. I think that you've given that speech before. You've explained it. Maybe once <laughs> or twice. Times. How long have you been involved with... Uh... 
the master food preservers? Well, I've been doing food preservation for, for many, many years. Um, I can't even remember. I grew up with it. And, but in 2009, I was seeking to teach myself more. And I came across the Master Food Preserver program. Now, unfortunately, due to budget cutbacks and changes in our culture, there were only three Master Food Preserver programs in the entire state of California. One of them was in San Bernardino. And so I made a 100-mile round-trip drive once a week for 12 weeks to become certified as a Master Food Preserver through San Bernardino County Extension. Then once I was certified, uh, then I came back to Los Angeles County and began to revamp the program. And because of the interest in food and food preservation nowadays, uh, we have programs now in Orange County, uh, in uh, Humboldt County, mm-hmm. and a number of other counties are trying to restart the program, such as Ventura and San Diego and Riverside. And in Los Angeles County, that started up when? Because it was, it was around and then it wasn't around for a while, up until pretty recently? Right. It was around uh, until about 1997. Okay. Uh, and then due to budget, uh, budget cutbacks, lack of interest, the person who ran the program retired, uh, it died. Lack it, of interest, really? It was the 90s. People were doing crazy <laughs> things. <laughs> uh, but uh, we restarted it in the spring of 2011, mm-hmm. so a year ago. Right. And I, I hardly would believe that there's any sort of lack of interest now. I heard, how many applicants uh, usually try to get in to the to Well, the for this last class, we had 140 applicants. Not bad. 18 positions. For 18 positions. And one of those recent graduates <laughs> of the program is with us. So, Rose, tell us a little bit about uh, your background in food preservation and uh, fermenting and all, all the stuff that you do. Um... I really started playing around with food a couple years ago, seriously. Uh, My parents had a small cafe and a garden on the rooftop with bees growing up, but it was definitely quite a while ago, Um, and and I grew up during the 90s, so I can attest to that Uh being a time when people weren't really interested in food, because my food uh, approach definitely changed then. But I began to cook more and bake more, and the the more I knew, the more I wanted to pay attention to raw ingredients, and the more mm-hmm. I paid attention to raw ingredients, I became interested in preservation. Although I don't think I knew it so much as that broad mm-hmm. topic. Um, it did not occur to me that charcuterie and cheese making fell under that at first, but right. when I found out, of course. And I think that my real introduction to it, um, and first beginning on the love affair, especially with fermenting, uh, was when I got the book Wild Fermentation by Sandor Katz, and I just took to it immediately Mm -hmm. and began experimenting with everything and anything. And what I really loved about his approach was how, well, approachable it was (laughs) that anyone could do it. Um, And the more I did it, the more I loved it. And we ended up opening a a kitchen where we do a lot of stuff. And right now we do breads and fermented sodas. And what's the name of your company? It's called Red Bread and it's in Venice, California. We source everything from the Pacific coast and everything's local organic and biodegradable and we deliver by bicycle and we donate a portion of every sale to the la food bank and the hunger project i I love organizations that use bicycles as their only means of transportation there's a company uh, a coffee roaster in san francisco actually i think they're in oakland called bicycle coffee and they do everything by butt and i just think it's such a great you know it's it's sending a great message just like you know 
I think it's totally rising in popularity, especially mm-hmm. on the West Coast. You hear all the time about bicycle-based companies mm-hmm. in San Francisco, in Portland, and in Seattle. I mean, mm-hmm. Portland, I think, is really leading it. Uh, but there are bread companies, and I think it's... Uh, Bread Seriously is a gluten-free bakery that delivers by bike in San Francisco. Oh, yeah? Oh, that's There's a so bunch cool. of cool stuff going on, and we are actually um, getting a much larger bike designed by a Portland company called Metro Feats that will allow us to have cool. a restaurant essentially on wheels. And, I mean, it's it's, awesome. a, it's a joy for us because we get to be outside, and I uh-huh. love drawing people outside And as when well. did you start Red Bread? In January. Wow, this is a baby. <laughs> it is. How's a baby. it going? It's going all right. <laughs> it's going really great. Every time we go out into the community, uh, we really try to educate the public more mm-hmm. about food, which is what really attracted me to the Master Food Preserver mm-hmm. program because it was all about how do we get this information to the public? How do we make it digestible? How do we empower mm-hmm. the people? And I think not only do you save money, but when you know more about food, you feel instantly more connected, mm-hmm. and you're more likely to make good choices without thinking, "Oh, this is good for me." just it becomes sort of natural sure without making it sound too mystical <laughs> right right now uh, I you you briefly mentioned you know things like cheese which as we know not vegan and maybe some people are wondering why are these people on this podcast about vegan stuff and this is something that actually Ernest and I were just talking about earlier uh, being a vegan often re- you know you have to rely on uh, new skills to be able to, you know, thrive, especially if you're on the road. If anybody listens to the episode that I did with Mike Kaplan, he talked about not having a lot of options as a road comedian. And Ernest was telling me about a musician friend who uh, got into it to learn how to do canning. Uh, and we had also talked about trail mixes and things like that. Things that, you know, if you're a vegan on the road, you're not going to have the kind of options that a lot of other people have. And learning how to do a lot of these types of things canning and dehydrating, uh, things like that will definitely come in pretty handy. But also, uh, a lot of the kind of fermentation stuff, like kombucha, which, uh, Rose, you brought some, uh, that's just kind of a a big thing amongst, I'd say, a lot of people, but especially (laughs) vegans. It's kind of one of those things that you'll always see it at a vegan restaurant Mm -hmm. uh, or, or, you know, like a vegan convenience store or something like that. So I'm really excited to have you both here, uh, an instructor and a recent graduate of the program, to kind of walk me through some of the the things that you make, uh, some of the things that, and you've brought uh, a lot of those things, which is, oh my God, I'm going to post pictures on Twitter and everything, and I'm just absolutely excited to, to try as much as I can. Uh, but yeah, I mean, it's all about knowing what you can do with basic foods uh, to kind of just make, kick things up a little bit and uh, I'm sure there's also a lot of health benefits that goes along with, with a lot of these things that I just don't even know of. So um, Ernest, I'm curious to know, okay, so how long have you been doing the food preservation? I, I know that you said that you kind of always been had a part of your, your Well, I grew up with it. Uh, yeah. I'd like to say I actually wouldn't be here without food preservation because when my grandmother... You literally would not be here. I literally would not be <laughs> in here. In this room right now. Right. Well, but actually, going even beyond that. Right. None, none of us would be here, actually. That's another, that's, a, <laughs> yes. long, that's another long story. But my grandmother used to, when she was courting my, my uh, grandfather, used mm-hmm. to take the canned fried chicken they'd make. Uh, and on the picnics... Which is they vegan, would do, of course. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, uh, but, you know, uh, most vegans wouldn't be here if it wasn't for meats and stuff like that and mm-hmm. their family background. People, 
but uh, sure. ne- nevertheless. Sure. Um, <laughs> uh, so, you know, I like to say that. Uh, but I, I've been doing it for uh, quite a number of years. Uh, it's hard to say. Uh, my interest really started growing uh, into it much more about five or six years ago, mm-hmm. but uh, been dabbling in it my whole life. Great. Yeah, so what's some of the, the first things that you really took to in terms of, you know, the preservation? Was it like pickling things or dehydrating things? Like what was... What were some of the things that you first started getting into? Well, I think it was uh, a lot of the fermented foods. Mm-hmm. Uh, and because Shoot some examples at me here. Sauerkraut. Okay. Kimchi. Love it. Uh, kombucha. Uh-huh. Uh, I began to experiment with all sorts of different uh, fermented and, and pickled foods. Mm-hmm. All those things, I feel like they're getting really popular now. I, you know, every time I you know go to a farmer's market, someone's just like, oh my God, have you tried that kimchi? And it's like... I, this is a recent thing that people are asked, like talking about kimchi all the time, but people are just getting excited about it. And I think that also a lot of people are, uh, uh, food is a big thing now. I, I feel like food is on the rise. It's not the nineties anymore. Uh, so I, you know, people are really getting excited about food more and more and more and what they can do at home. Even if it's like, you know, infusing liquors with different types of things or you know some people say like oh my god i bought a dehydrator so i can make kale chips which is like this you know thing that's just becoming hugely popular and you know like kombucha things like that so now i feel like is the time when all this stuff is becoming more and more relevant to a, a wider uh group of people and i think that it's it even shows you know you get over 140 applicants for this program that's uh pretty exclusive so well, it's exclusive uh, for the people to get in the program. We only have a limited number of spaces. Mm-hmm. Uh, but, but the idea is that it's very inclusive, is that mm-hmm. we're training more people to go out into the community and teach and people. Teach. So it's not we're this little clique of people trying to just get all oh, these no, but to give not. away this, to train these people, yeah. to give away the knowledge, to answer people's questions, uh, to show them the possibilities mm-hmm. uh, that exist. Because a lot of people just don't realize the power of the dehydrator or the power of fermentation. Uh, it's really amazing the things you can do. I mean, I love me some kale chips. Uh-huh. I mean, I can go on a whole spew about all the wonderful things you can do with kale chips. I've put out, right, to, to the, the the date that I've put out uh, episodes right now, there's been four episodes, two of them have had kale chips on them. <laughs> so that just goes to show you. So we're a disappointment. We didn't bring any. No, no. I, hey, it's like, hope we didn't bring kale chips. No, no. Oh, you just kale chips can be used to garnish soup. Kale mm-hmm. chips can be used to be mixed into rice or rice pilaf. <laughs> kale uh, chips can be used to mix into popcorn. Of oh, course, you know, flavoring kale yeah. chips, you can do all sorts of different flavor combinations with kale chips in mm-hmm. all sorts of different ways. Uh, it's just an amazing thing. I was, <laughs> now I, you I, can I mean, check that off I your love, list yeah. for the podcast. I love the kale chips. <laughs> I was talking to my mom the other day, and uh, kale chips came up in conversation, and she was like... Uh, telling me like she had kind of like mixed opinions on them but she was like oh maybe I'll you know crunch them up and put it in my salad and she started like coming with all these ideas of things that you can do with kale chips and I was like yes I think yes. the wonderful thing you can do with a dehydrator um, and totally what I learned from other graduates who came back and taught some of the classes for Master Food Preserver is play with texture mm-hmm. which I thought was absolutely wild because as you dehydrate it longer and longer it becomes brittle you can turn that into powders you can keep that Ooh. as spices essentially build your spice rack yourself that way okay let's talk a little bit about dehydrators because this is something that you know especially uh people who are raw uh i feel like they one of their kitchen appliances is usually a a food dehydrator uh and you know raw vegans is a lot of those 
and it, it's it's just extremely common now. Uh, I feel like dehydrators can be pretty pricey. Uh, I mean, what do you, what's your take on you know like the cheapy dehydrators? Do you know anything about them? Not a not a big fan. Not a big fan. Uh, so what's your what's your advice if someone really wants to seriously get into dehydrating? Well, first of all, start experimenting just with using your oven or using uh, some sort of a basic solar dehydration system that you can jimmy together. There's a lot of plans on the internet if you just have some screens and some concrete blocks. or There's a lot of different things you can do with just a pizza, parts and pieces of equipment you find around the house. Mm -hmm. uh, or again, you can use your oven, set it on low, crack the doors open, put a little fan on there or something. Uh, so before you invest your money in a, in a dehydrator, which can be expensive, mm -hmm. Find out whether it's something DIY. you interest you and you like it. Come on, raw vegans love doing DIY <laughs> stuff, right? Well, if you and that's a lot of the stuff I do because I don't have my own dehydrator mm -hmm. yet. <laughs> but I think if you do do it outside, make sure you are covering it so that you are protecting it to some degree. Mm -hmm. um, and if you are sort of already past that and you really want to invest in a dehydrator, the ones that I've been looking at. Um, they have horizontal shelves with the fan in the back so that hmm. you can do multiple different flavors without mixing them. Right. And a lot of the old cheaper models have it on the bottom and so it's sending the food sort of through each other. Okay. And you're gonna lose a lot of flavor due to that sure. just plain mechanical process. Right, yeah, so she's talking about what's uh, called a box type dehydrator. Right, those are the ones that I've seen. Right, and those, those are the superior for a number of reasons. Um, and of course, you know, the other thing is, if you do want to get into dehydration, uh, I don't recommend the the round ones that with the stackable plates. There's a right. number of problems with that. One, the heat source is on the bottom, so the stuff at the bottom dries quicker than the stuff at the top, which means That's you then have to switch the or you have to time. plan it out and do different things in each tier that take different amounts of time. Abs absolutely, right. uh, too much planning. Yes, uh, you know uh, they don't they, they're not multi-purpose, and I'll talk about the box stack dehydrators in a section. On the one hand, on the other hand. Quite often, people buy these things, never use them, and you can find them on Craigslist or at a, on a yard sale for 10 bucks, 20 bucks. And so if you want to get a dehydration, finding a used one uh, mm -hmm. might be a way to get in cheap. And then you find, oh my gosh, I really like dehydrating. I want to move up to the next level. So I'm sure. going to invest in a, in a more expensive one. Now, the box stock dehydrators provide for more even uh, uh, dehydration. Mm -hmm. uh, you must make sure they have a temperature control, particularly important, of course, for raw vegans who get to keep the temperature below mm -hmm. 116 or whatever is it is. Is that what it is, 116? There is some dispute about that. Okay. Some people say 118, some people say 116. <laughs> uh, I'm not going to get in there, but I'm just saying is that sure. you can adjust the temperature to where you want it. Okay. Um, with the trays, you don't have to, with the horizontal trays, you don't have to switch them out all the time. Mm -hmm. And then you have the option of doing other things like taking the trays out uh, and then you can use the right. box to proof bread, you know, or to, to do... To proof bread. Absolutely. You set the temperature to say 115 degrees, uh -huh. uh, and you'll get a nice, consistent rise on your bread, which you don't always want. Some certain types of sourdoughs, you want a low rise, a slow rise. Okay. But other times, you just want that bread to rise so you can bake it off. Sure. So, um, you know, buying a, its own proofing box is something expensive, but you can use a dehydrator for that. Right. If you have the one with the shelves, the that shelves you that you just remove, mm -hmm. then you can put a whole big old loaf of bread in there, or a big bowl of bread. Uh, or you can also do other types of uh, fermentation in there the way the temperature might be a little higher. You want certain fermentations okay. to take place at 100 degrees or 110 degrees uh, for certain types of uh, fermentations. And so you can then use your dehydrator for that. Kind of hard to do with the stackable plate model unless you have really shallow, tiny plates. Okay. Right, right, right. 
this is so fascinating. I'm so happy that we're talking about this stuff right now. Uh, okay, so dehydration, just talking a little bit more about that. Clearly, kale chips, that's one thing. What are some other things that people might not think that they can do with a dehydrator uh, that maybe you would suggest? Um, you know, I haven't, I haven't played around enough with a dehydrator. Mm -hmm. Like I said, the spices, we had a, a former grad come right. in and, and show us all these spices he had made. And it was absolutely mind blowing to me. It was right. incredible. That so you just dry it out completely and then just crush it up and essentially that's what he did. He just sort of dried out anything he wanted mm -hmm. completely to a brittle state and then put it through a spice grinder and ended up with his spice cabinet, which I, for that alone, I would want to invest in a dehydrator. Right. But I think that it's important to note that, um, without bursting any bubbles, but dehydration in general concentrates mm -hmm. um, flavor, but also in drying it out, you get a lot of nutrition loss and mm -hmm. uh, the calories stay the same, but you're eating more because there's the quantity, the size, the volume has mm -hmm. changed. Just in general, as a dehydration note. No, that's very interesting. That's very important to know because a lot of people might think like, "Oh, I'm, why?" You, it should just I not be just the strict the way time. you now consume all right. your food. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> not the way to do it. But it's a great tool to you know know how to use. Uh, oh, absolutely. And, also, you know, and bring like, in textures to your to your daily right. life on your and own. And we were talking before we started recording about trail mixes and. Mm -hmm. Very interesting things that you can do to jazz up, you know, just a handful of nuts. Uh, oh, ab absolutely. <laughs> uh, the, the hydrators, uh, people think of them, okay, I can dry fruit. whoop de doo Right. Well, the fact of the matter is you can use them to change textures, to make your own powders. You can make mm -hmm. your own onion powder, your own garlic powder. They're going to taste a hundred times better than the stuff you buy at the store because they're fresh, absolutely. tons of flavor. Yeah. But you can go beyond that, make leek powder, make carrot powder, make beet powder powder. They add that color, flavor, garnish, uh, a certain pizzazz. And heck, if you're growing beets, you're probably going to have a lot more beets than you can potentially eat. Probably. Now, we can talk about <laughs> fermented beets and we can talk kvass. We can talk about, you know, other ways of eating beets. But beet powder would be fantastic. Well, I did want to... I have 10 minutes blocked off for beets. <laughs> in a couple, no, I don't. But, uh, right. no, I'm sorry. Go, go keep going. <laughs> yeah. So, but, uh, so, you know, the powders are, are, are one thing and, and incredibly interesting. Mm -hmm. But people don't realize that, you know, you can make your own fruit roll-ups. Oh, yeah. But right. you can make fruit roll-ups with a lot more interesting flavors, a lot more interesting combinations. And you can also make vegetable roll-ups. Right. Or what we call leathers. leathers. And you can make things... Uh, like salsa leather. You you mentioned that to me earlier, and I was like, "What salsa leather? Sign <laughs> me up! That sounds amazing. That sounds so cool." Oh, it's absolutely fantastic! Yeah. You can make a salsa leather, uh, and then chop it up. Uh, you can put it into a salad, add it to a sandwich, mm -hmm. uh, add it to a soup. I like to make a tortilla soup and then put a green salsa, tomatillo leather in there. It kind of melts a little bit into the soup. Uh, absolutely fantastic. But you could also put it into a trail mix or something like right. that. You could dry your own peppers, make mm -hmm. your own dried, red dried peppers, which is very easy to do and much better than the stuff you buy in the store. Uh, but you can like, for example, candy jalapeno slices and dry them and add that and make a spicy sweet trail mix. Right. Um, people think trail mixes always have to be sweet. Of course, they don't have to. You no. take them savory. Uh, you know, you could make your own sort of um, pizza trail mix. Uh, uh -huh. with, you know, some dried tomatoes, some dried basil, uh, -huh. uh, you know, whatever you, you know, other sort of flavors that you want to get there that you like on your pizza, mix it in with the nuts and things, uh, you know, add some tomato powder to it to kind of get that I'm tomato. I'm salivating over here. Uh, yeah, right. <laughs> 
I mean, and, well, you can make a tomato sauce leather uh-huh. as well. Uh, but there's all sorts of different things you can do. Uh, and of course, you have the option of making things exactly the way you want them, and oftentimes much less expensive. If a friend of yours has a plum tree, mm-hmm. well, you could be out drying those plums. And you can add some different flavors, make different plum leathers. Uh, you can dry the plums plain. You can dry the plums maybe with a little bit of sugar, maybe a little agave syrup uh, to get the, sweet, the sweetness level you'd want or the tartness level. Uh, or, or just be imaginative and, and creative. Dehydration lends itself so well to uh, amazing flavor. It's the, the yeah. first of the food preservation methods that, that human beings figured out and one of the most versatile. And I'm, I'm, it's terrible that we don't use it more nowadays. Speaking about versatility, I was going to say there's a, lot of, um, there's a lot of things you can do with a dehydrator or a lot of foods you can preserve with a dehydrator that you can't really preserve in any other way. Mm-hmm. Uh, significantly, like leafy, leafy greens mm-hmm. are very difficult. You don't want to can them. <laughs> mm-hmm. They don't really take to fermenting, although I have had a fermented sort of dark-leaved things uh-huh. based on a spontaneous fermentation when I was in Tibet that was really delicious, but I've never been able to <laughs> make again. Uh-huh. It's one of my life's quests now. Um, oh, wow. But you can dehydrate a lot of uh, beet greens and wheat grass mm-hmm. and then, again, turn them into a powder, and green supplements are really popular today, so that's a right. really good way to take that off the market and make it much lower cost but still get that sure. intake. Uh Quick question, and then I want to at least start with one of these wonderful snacks that you guys have brought. Uh, Ernest, what's your kitchen at home like? Is it is it just stocked with all of these crazy, you know, preserved foods, or do you keep all that stuff outside of the house? <laughs> well, I, I use my garage for storage. Um, I have Excellent. A, I have I have a lot of equipment. Uh huh. So you know, I you know, let, you know, it can get expensive if to really to do all the different things of food mm-hmm. preservation. You know, a good pressure canner can run two hundred and fifty dollars. The the dehydrator can run two hundred dollars. It adds up. But you know, I've been doing it for a long time over the years. Sure. So I've built up some equipment and then I've also figured out certain equipment that doesn't work so now I can explain to people yeah don't buy this one <laughs> that's um, great uh, now I do have a, a fair amount of beans um, uh-huh. that I pressure canned uh, and stocked uh, but for the most part now that I'm doing so much canning for the MFP program and for my kitchen I'm the chef at the farmer's kitchen in Hollywood mm-hmm. uh, that um, my uh, food preservation at home has decreased substantially okay so in the event of some sort of apocalyptic event I might not be as into running over to your place as I, as I think I would be well you'd probably be better, better off, <laughs> better than, off. The, than the average house sure but okay. I'm not I'm not where I was actually okay all right. I used to be quite well stocked <laughs> uh, how about you Rose what's, what's your setup like uh, when you when you ask this question I could just hear my husband like starting to laugh hysterically because I just have, there are just bottles bubbling everywhere, sealed, Uh and they're all labeled, which I highly encourage when you start to experiment, always, always label. You will regret it the first time you do something fabulous and you're like, oh my God, I don't remember what that was. (laughs) If you're a DIYer. Um, But yeah, we have cabinets bursting with things, the entire Mm -hmm. kitchen and especially the fridge is just tons of jars. Um, it's delicious, uh-huh. but it's definitely Tetris sometimes. Right, right. <laughs> kind of like a, some sort of chemistry lab. Exactly. Yeah. That is exactly what yeah. it looks like. I, I absolutely love the chemistry of food. I've been really into um, coffee making lately, and I, just because I love the chemistry of it so much. And this is another thing, you know, fermenting, 
uh, is, is all about chemistry. Uh, so why don't we... Who, okay, where are we going to start with this stuff? What are we doing? <laughs> Somebody... Who wants well, to start with this? Because when when we, we have to pace this out a little bit. <laughs> when we talk about fermentation, and uh-huh. when we're teaching people fermentation, one of the things I always encourage them to do first, because it almost always works, there's, there's, it's very basic technique, is sauerkraut. Okay. All and right. So I have some of a Farmer's Kitchen sauerkraut right here. Uh, it's a red cabbage sauerkraut, a live okay. sauerkraut, and I have a jar of our canned green sauerkraut. Okay. Because one of the things you can do is you can make the sauerkraut then you can can it so it doesn't have to be refrigerated and can be stored on the shelf. Oh, okay. Uh, but the live kraut you store in the refrigerator or if you have a root That's uh, a cellar. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, <laughs> taking the, the plastic wrap so it didn't leak all over the place. Um, and basically that's uh, just cabbage, mm-hmm. salt, mm-hmm. Uh, and some spices. Caraway, mustard seed, and celery seed. Um, that uh, then went, underwent a lacto-fermentation process. A lacto-fermentation process. What does that mean? Uh, it means that the, the main uh, bacteria involved, and there's hundreds of bacteria. You could write a dissertation, and people have. Oh, it smells so good. On uh, what you're doing. <laughs> uh, and you get a wonderful... Uh, uh, the, the lactobacillus uh, create lactic acid, and okay. lactic acid is the primary preservative. It transforms the texture and the flavor. Uh, and then provides a preservative effect because most other bacteria cannot survive the acidity. Uh, in addition, the presence of salt is critically important because that makes a hospitable environment for the mm-hmm. lactobacillus and an inhospitable environment for many of the other bacteria that uh, cause rotting and decay. And, okay. and, and so, so when was this prepared? This was probably prepared about six to nine months ago. Excellent. The longer the better. Nice. <laughs> All right, I'm gonna. It's like I'm a gonna, fine wine. <laughs> yeah, right. I'm gonna, I'm gonna try some, but I want you guys to join me. Okay. If if that'll be all right, I have some forks over here. This is the this is the most crowded this table has Thanks, ever been. Just a little sampling here. That is delicious. Uh. I've had this type of kraut before, but it's never been this flavorful. Well, thank you. That's very nice. So you made this one yourself? Uh, generally, yes. Generally, I may have had some help uh, cutting and putting things together. Who but I'm always there six to nine nice. months ago. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, I invite people to come to my kitchen and uh, apprentice with me and help me with the food mm-hmm. preservation so they can learn the techniques as well. And do you bring uh, students from the Master Food Preservers class to... The Master Food Preservers class, but from the general public. Mm-hmm. Anybody who's interested in learning food preservation is more than... Uh, and can you know, show up when I'm actually doing it, uh, more than happy to teach them and help me with the, with the work of shredding the cabbage mm-hmm. and packing it into right. the, the fermenters and things. So how... You know, you get 140 applicants and you only have a certain amount of people that you can let in. How do you know who to choose? Like, what are the things that you're looking for in, you know, a student? Well, we're looking for two things in our students primarily. Uh, one is a passion for food preservation in any one of its forms. Maybe, you know, you've been canning for a number of years. You entered the L.A. County Fair and won prizes. Okay. Or maybe you're doing a lot of fermenting at home. Or maybe you're... Uh, so it's somebody that already has a little bit of experience but wants to take it to the next level. I think it has more to do with being able to speak the language a little and, okay. and, and interest so that you're not mm-hmm. coming in as a novice because it is a rigorous program 
Um, and there are some varying levels in the students who come in, mm -hmm. but you need to be able to catch on and learn because you mm -hmm. will then be able, the next part is to learn how to give that how knowledge. To teach. Exactly. Right. Well, and the other thing is, even though it's a very intense course, you have to continue your education beyond the course. So you have to be passionate and love doing preservation. Mm -hmm. uh, but the second thing, and, and, and probably even more important, is a passion for volunteering, mm -hmm. to particularly volunteering in low resource communities is that you want to take this knowledge, and we're not teaching you so you can just go home and do it. We, we encourage that. We want people to do more of it at home, but so that you'll then go out into the community, to community gardens, right. to school gardens, to shelters, uh, and teach people how to do this the proper way. Is there anywhere like online that people can find out where some of these you know, community uh, like gardens and things like that might be? You know, Maybe you don't know where in your you know, city or wherever you are. Is there anywhere? I think Google's a great start. Just Google? Just Google it? <laughs> well, uh, the Los Angeles County uh, University of California Cooperative Extension uh, also has a Master Gardener program. Yeah. And so uh, they have a list of most of the community gardens in Los Angeles. You can also go to the Los Angeles um, Community Garden Council, mm -hmm. uh, which is a great resource. Additionally, the Master Gardeners run LA Victory Garden programs throughout okay. the city. And if you go on there, you can sign up to know when it's happening. And what mm -hmm. they offer is really, really low cost, very uh, attention heavy gardening classes in the community so that mm -hmm. you can learn how to garden your own backyard. Okay. Uh, just thinking though, outside of Los Angeles, because we have people listening to this podcast from all over the world. That's right. Fabulous. I know. So, <laughs> oh, well. uh, so I, I guess just going online and digging around or, you know, maybe even at some of the resources that you just mentioned for Los Angeles, people, you know, you could contact somebody and they could let you know where to go if you're Absolutely. in Nebraska or something. Uh, although I have to say that in many ways, Los Angeles is a little bit of ahead of the curve on certain, some of these things. Uh, That's right. Pay attention, rest of the world. But I think that no matter where you are, if you really do want to start there, if there's not a resource in your area, there, there, Without saying the internet is the answer to anything, everything, because uh -huh. I don't mean that. But you can find a lot of information about how to make your own garden, mm -hmm. how to rework the soil, and how to do it. So you can be right. the one who starts there's that resource. There's a lot of great, just like online videos, like Absolutely. tutorials about things that you know you can learn how to do almost anything. Just you know, if you find the right videos. Education cool. has been totally redefined by by this medium. It's wild. <laughs> uh, now I'm gonna try some of this other. This is, okay, so this is the one that is the, doesn't need to be refrigerated. It, no, it Remind doesn't. Remind me what this one was. Okay. Uh, so we have uh, the exact same sauerkraut recipe. Okay. Uh, except using uh, common sauerkraut instead of the red cabbage, so it doesn't have that bright purple flit, mm -hmm. bright purple color. But this one has been canned. Okay. Uh, so that it's shelf stable, so you don't have to keep it in the refrigerator. You can put it on your garage shelf. Um, uh, which is uh, a wonderful opportunity because people's refrigerators get quite full, as mm -hmm. Rose was talking about. Right. Uh, so you might want to be able to put some sauerkraut aside for the time. Now, the canning process is going to transform the flavor and the texture once mm -hmm. again. Uh, now, I grew up with canned sauerkraut uh, mm -hmm. in my house. And it has a particular flavor and a particular texture. Uh, and so I grew up with that. I like that. Uh, I've grown to really love live sauerkraut that hasn't been canned yet, but sometimes you got to go back to the old school. And the other thing to remember also with sauerkraut is many times you're going to be cooking it anyway. You're going to make right. a braised sauerkraut or you're going to make one of those uh, New York dogs where the sauerkraut's <laughs> been steamed. And, uh, so the canning process, although it does cook it, 
uh, is perfectly fine and, and if you're going to already be using it for something that's going to be cooked anyway. Right. That's fantastic, by the way. And so how old would you say this one is? When do you think this one is made? <laughs> uh, that's, that's something that's so great well, about it. Well, give me the lid. It's labeled. Oh, it's on the lid. <laughs> Labeling is important. So, exactly. All right. Let's see. Uh, it just says Best Buy. I just wanted to say a note in case maybe... Yeah, this was made um, about six months ago. Okay. Um, in case maybe a vocab word is getting lost on listeners when Ernie says live sauerkraut. Okay. Um, live means that the lactobacillus is still active, and there are tons of health benefits to that. Mm -hmm. It is what people have commonly come to know as a probiotic. Uh -huh. And so when you do apply heat, you will still have, it will change the flavor and texture. You'll still have much more unique flavor and texture mm -hmm. than you would off a store-bought sauerkraut. Right. Although there are some wonderful artisans popping up in some areas. Um, but if you want to do it yourself, you'll definitely have a better flavor. The probiotic sort of health benefit ends at that heating point. Right. So, so that's why we refer to live. Right. Note to vegans, if you hear... We're not eating like living creatures that, you know, we wouldn't want to be eating. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, that, uh, that, thank you for, for well, tuning we, in. Well, as she was saying, probiotics, we want to eat these living creatures. Right. We want to eat these bacteria. We want right. more of these in our system, especially nowadays. I think when you mentioned earlier that you saw that people were becoming really, really interested in this. Sure. I find it really fascinating because I'm one of those people, but I also realized that this was, this was the matter of the day every day you did this like a mm -hmm. hundred years ago this was just the way it was done yeah. and we in this commercialization of the food industry we've lost a lot of flavor sure. and a lot of a lot of well it's more like now health. that it's easier to do things we've lost a lot of you know the the great flavors and the i don't know the, the preparation and you know a lot of the health benefits are lost with all the you know packaged products and absolutely but additionally with fermented foods i mean the probiotics yeah. are like good bacteria for right. your gut and really in terms of the world your defenses are your immune system and your digestive mm -hmm. system and most people today have their digestive sort of good bacteria totally wiped out because we use so many antibiotics right and eating these live cultured foods are is a great way to rebuild that mm -hmm. um and when you have two defenses, it's great. <laughs> and this, my my listeners, is why this is podcast is in the health section of <laughs> iTunes. Uh, <laughs> Sorry. Earning, no, no, no. I'm, I'm earning that. I'm earning the right to be there. Uh, no, this this is fascinating. Like it's it's true. It's really interesting, and I think it's great that people are getting more excited about these types of foods. And it's not just like about the ease of things, because at least the the people that I come in contact with are people who are excited about doing things themselves, you know, and and exploring what they can do within their own kitchen, for example. Well, I think one of the beauties of fermentation specifically in terms of food uh, preservation, like water bath canning or pressure canning or dehydrator, is you really need very little equipment. Mm -hmm. And most fermentations happen spontaneously. Like if you didn't even put any effort, it's going to happen. Mm -hmm. um, I mean, with the with the cabbage, Ernie can attest more to this, but you're putting salt and pressure. Mm -hmm. That's not very much. If we're talking, people have been accustomed to ease. I think if they just know how easy it is, right. it would really skyrocket. And we have a fermented drink here. It's oh, turmeric soda. Turmeric soda. And turmeric is a root that also has wonderful health benefits. Mm -hmm. <laughs> 
I want to up your health quotient here. Excellent. Um, Got to earn my stripes. And like most roots, uh, once you place them in water with mm -hmm. a little, you have to be careful to use filtered water. Chlorine is very okay. uh, damaging to these little microorganisms. Um, will ferment spontaneously. So this is really how we had an original root beer uh -huh. um, by fermenting sarsaparilla root and all kinds of things. So this is an old... Was Thank you. Older than time. Along with ginger root, ginger ales, this is originally how it was done. So okay. cheers. So, so what's in this? So this is turmeric root and a little evaporated cane sugar in filtered water that I left out uh, covered to create pet pressure Okay. Um, for about a week and then put it in the fridge and now it is a naturally fermented soda. Great. Here, let's uh, take glasses <laughs> here. Cheers, everybody. All right. I've never had anything like this before. It is very tasty. I like it a lot. It's it's absolutely delicious. It's mm -hmm. it's, it's refreshing. It's bright. It's, it's very refreshing in the I mean the health benefits. <laughs> you're getting you're getting those probiotics. Mm -hmm. And I wouldn't drink a huge amount of it because it does contain some sugar still. And, you know, but uh, I would you ferment need, it you a little a, longer. You don't need a lot of mm -hmm. this to quench your thirst. No, <laughs> not at all. So you said okay. So you would. Ferment this longer? I think I would ferment it longer just because I would like the effervescence to come up. Mm -hmm. And one of the a light... week isn't a lot of time, I guess. Well, I mean, you, this was very bubbly and alive within two days. But one mm -hmm. of the great things about fermenting at home, especially in small batches when you're testing out recipes, is you can sort of open it and taste it and see mm -hmm. where it's going along. And you can decide for yourself how sweet you want it, how how dry you want it. And uh -huh. One of the life cycles with fermentation is it'll create carbon dioxide when it's consuming the sugars. Mm -hmm. And if left under pressure for long enough, it'll then create alcohol. So that's how you right. have beer. So the longer I would leave it, the more carbonation would build and slowly alcohol would start to build. Oh, okay. So that would happen around months. And I right. left this only a week. So I would like it just a little more bubbly, but before it starts turning into any kind of right. like hard turmeric cider. Sure. <laughs> Although that might be it delicious. It might be really good. And you could really go for that. Let's, hmm, that sounds like a good experiment. The marketing campaign almost writes itself. I know. <laughs> <laughs> and I think another, I mean, Ernie mentioned the sugar, and that comes up a lot when I talk about these drinks because mm -hmm. you are putting sugar in. But I think it's important to realize that sugar is less should not be thought of so much as what you're putting into the drink and therefore what you will be consuming, mm -hmm. but you're putting in a food source for these microorganisms. Right. And they will consume that sugar and then produce these other things that add value to the, um, to the product. For instance, in kombucha, it eats the sugar, but by the time the kombucha is ready, it doesn't taste very sweet at all. Right. Because it's already been consumed and changed into something else. Sure. So not necessarily the sugar content that you put in is actually what you get out. Absolutely. That's so great. that's one reason not to be freaked out. <laughs> now, how how easy or difficult would you say something like this is to make, you know, for somebody who's never done anything like this before? Well, like I said, um, fermentation will take part sometimes without you lending a hand at all. Uh -huh. I got some turmeric root. You could also get... Uh, ginger root. You could get it from the store. You could wild forage it if that is wild more your more your bent um, for sarsaparilla root and things like that. You cut it up just to increase surface area and put a little sugar and water and mm -hmm. tighten it. And you just 
put everything all in at once and kind I of put everything with this with this I put everything in all at once mm-hmm. different ferments sort of have their own little rules because they are all different little microorganisms okay. so for instance kombucha you can see the mother I don't know if you can see in this one but there's a little I chose this one because it had gathered a little <laughs> condensation is hiding it but there's a little jellyfish like creature that's now at the bottom. This is bottom. still totally vegan, folks. Don't worry. <laughs> it's yeah. just in appearance. Well, right. I mean, I remember my first time seeing kombucha. I was like, what in the world is going on here? And it's like, do I drink that? You know, the, you know what, what, what happens here? There's all these things floating around. I always tell people it's lucky if they get, it's if lucky. They get the one that has the little floaty <laughs> creature. Uh-huh. But for instance, with kombucha, you would not want to start everything all anew you would want to leave a little and then add the portion and it's similar to bread in that way so mm-hmm. you always have some from a previous batch to add fresh water or fresh tea right. or fresh flour depending on what you're doing so that sure. you're not overwhelming what's called the mother while we're talking about kombucha uh can you tell me a little bit going back to basics, exactly what it is. And I'm going to get some more glasses and we're going to have some of this too. Awesome. All right. So yeah, tell me just a little bit about the the core of what kombucha is. So kombucha is a scoby that um, is very, actually, I would say almost identical to the vinegar scoby um, in that they are interchangeable. Some may fail because Every microorganism is individual is the best way to think about it, just like every person. So you may fail one time making a transfer if you are fermenting both. Um, But the best way to get a SCOBY is uh, from a friend. You hunt someone down in your community. Most people are very excited to share. I got this one from someone I met at a food swap, actually. And there's also tons of resources online where you can buy SCOBY. Uh But I personally really like the idea of it being shared because that's how it once was. That's also something that I like about, um, and this is part of you know the vegan culture, and, and also with, I feel like with any uh, group of people who have a very who have a common food connection, it's all about the community and sharing and you know bringing everybody bringing people together, kind of with with a food. I, you know, I, I, I love that about it. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things I always emphasize with food preservation, that it's a very community-oriented type mm-hmm. of food. Uh, going way back in history, communities had to get together to do uh, food preservation. Mm-hmm. Uh, entire uh, towns in Poland would get together to put up barrels and barrels of sauerkraut for the winter. Um, you also you know, have you know, massive, uh, you know, always families working together to, to do canning and uh, different things, community canning centers, and all sorts of different things. So it's very, very community oriented. Yeah, I love it. It's great, and that's, I mean, something that with vegans, it's it's big. You know, everybody's always excited to tell everybody else about something new that they've tried, or you know, it's you know, vegan potlucks are a big thing. Everybody's doing them, and it's just like. Oh, what else can I do differently with food? You know, because uh, I mean, when I became vegan, uh, a lot of people said to me like, "Oh, that's so limiting," you know. And a lot of people always say to me, "It's like, what do you eat?" Somebody the other day asked me, "So, what do vegans eat?" Like, didn't have any clue. And it was, uh, you know, becoming vegan gave me an excuse to really explore food and what you can do with food. And that's, you know, exactly what you guys are doing 
you know, it's like, what else can we do with this? Go do with the few ingredients, and, you know, and in your case, time. <laughs> you know, it's like, what can we do and, and to make something completely fantastic and uh, original? And that's, that's something that kind of crosses over between, you know, vegans and people who do food preservation, I feel. As a non-vegan, I have to say that I am consistently impressed with the food that comes out of vegan kitchens. I think that the idea of exploration yeah. is a profound way to look you're, at food. You're forced great. to have to do you have things to think outside the box. Exactly. Absolutely. And I think that has yielded some incredible mm -hmm. food that I would never have thought to eat. Right. Um, that I've loved. <laughs> well, uh, can you tell me some of the things that maybe you've tried that kind of stood out or maybe some places that you've been that... Well, I, you know, actually there's a vegan uh, restaurant in Ojai, California, okay. called Hip, that I really, really loved. Really? It was absolutely delicious. They had some date milkshakes uh, mm -hmm. with almond and soy milk and all mm -hmm. kinds of things that were really fabulous. But I think um, more than sort of working with tofu, which I think is brilliant, mm -hmm. um, I've really enjoyed dishes that I see made with... Uh, ingredients that aren't necessarily for vegans only, like quinoa and almonds and hey, millet. There's but nothing that's for vegans only. Well, exactly. But I'm saying, <laughs> like, in people's, in the greater populace, that some people mm -hmm. think, oh, well, that's really a vegan food. Right. I've seen some whole meals made with some things that everyone would eat, but yeah. the way they're constructed to be complete right. meals, I think, is genius. Mm -hmm. so it absolutely is. All right, I'm trying to trust some of this kombucha. I've only ever had, I've never had, like, Homemade kombucha. It's always been, you know, the store-bought stuff, which is still great, but let's see. Well, this is well, red bread made kombucha. <laughs> right, but this is, wow. Well, the, the wonderful thing about so making your yeah. own kombucha at home is far less expensive than the stuff you buy oh, in the stores. That's um, the way it is. Make, you know, homemade... Well, I mean, not, not everything. Certain oh. things. I mean, you're never going to be able to make beer cheaper than Coors can, if you want to call that beer. But you'll make like it I better. Like I said, you'll make it a lot better. Nevertheless, you'll you can make, make it a lot tastier. You, but you can make your own kombucha that, you know, is amazingly flavored, far cheaper. Ends up being about, it. it's like $4 to buy a bottle at the store. Ends up being about $0.25 cents a bottle if you make right. it yourself. It's really wonderful um, mm -hmm. if you want to... I was talking about the SCOBY earlier. I think one of the things that I personally love about kombucha especially is that no one really quite knows where the SCOBY came from. Okay. There is just literature on how to use it or how to interact with it and ferment things, huh. which I think is, I mean, I'm, I love things that are magical and unexplainable, so that <laughs> is definitely a draw to me. Um, but kombucha works best if you are bringing it, bringing it home uh, with black or green teas hmm. it definitely produces the best flavor i myself err on black teas and right. if you ever want to change the flavor you would want to do that in a second fermentation okay so there, there are some there are some teas for example that have certain herbs or things that are antimicrobial exactly and therefore uh, will throw off your fermentation sure um, for example hops mm -hmm. uh, are actually put into beer because they are antimicrobial okay uh, so if you want to say turn your beer into vinegar which is similar to, is another type of fermentation, uh, you have to use malt liquor, which doesn't have hops. Got it. Uh, in order, to, because otherwise the, the hops are designed to kill the other things. They, mm -hmm. they have an additional preservative effect. That is fascinating. So that's why you want to avoid some of the caffeine-free, like, herb-based ones. Right. I but, feel like I feel actually... feel free to experiment, though. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Right. I think that's also, like, a big part of all of this is, like, do whatever you think you might want to do and see what happens. Mm -hmm. You know, experimentation is just like a big part of uh, 
what's exciting about food, I feel. Right, and again with kombucha, as Rose was mentioning earlier, you get to make things just the way you want them. She was talking about how she uh, thought that you might want to ferment that turmeric soda a little bit longer. Right. But the thing, same thing with kombucha. Uh, you can have a five-day kombucha, let it ferment for just five days. It's going to be a little sweeter, not quite as tart. Let okay. it go seven days. Let it go ten days. Uh, now you're starting to get into super tart territory generally. But the thing is, you decide, and also mm-hmm. you decide how you're going to use it. So, for example, some people will you know, add the kombucha to another beverage, uh, a little bit of kombucha with fruit juice or something right. like that. Um, to, it, to get kombucha the, does have a want. very um, distinct flavor that I, I feel... If you're not prepared for it, it could be a little uh, shocking. Uh, so, you know, I think that that's the type of thing where people might want to cut it. It's vinegar. Yeah. Yeah, it's, it's, well, it's even referred to in some cultures as a weak vinegar. Oh, really? And a lot of that has to do with the fact that a scoby can be interchanged between mm-hmm. the two. Um, and it acts a little differently in both. Mm-hmm. So if you were to place this scoby, if you had a scoby from kombucha in vinegar and wine... Mm-hmm. Um, it would sink to the bottom. But in kombucha, it's alive if it's floating on the sure. top. Huh. So, but, and it'll, it'll take a few weeks for it to adjust, and maybe during the time it won't taste great, but you could easily ferment mm-hmm. wine and kombucha with the same, huh. with the same mechanism. Well, the kombucha scoby, also sometimes called the mother, is a cellulosic disc. Uh, basically, the bacteria is eating the carbohydrates from the sugar and creating cellulose, uh, and that's creating a bacterial colony that's going to float on top. Because in this case, this is a uh, aerobic fermentation, meaning that kombucha needs oxygen in order to ferment. Whereas many other fermentations, such as the sauerkraut you just mm-hmm. ate, uh, is a lacto-fermentation. It's an anaerobic fermentation, meaning it doesn't like oxygen. Right. Now, in the case of uh, kombucha, you have two things going on. You have a yeast and a bacteria. Okay that are combining. The yeast uh, is eating some of the sugars and creating a little bit of alcohol. Uh, And the uh, bacteria, in this case, acetobacter, is eating the alcohol and turning it into acetic acid, which is the distinctive flavor of kombucha. There's a lot going on in that bottle. There is. Well, I mean, again, once again, there's actually hundreds of different uh, bacterias and and, and creatures living in there. But the main ones are going to be your yeast and your Mm -hmm. acetobacter. Now we actually have a gigantic jar of yeast, don't we? <laughs> What's going on? What's going on over here? So I brought uh, a gigantic jar <laughs> of gigantic. dried wild yeast. Okay. Um, so this is a way to, again, it's called a mother, um, but it is the okay. mother of any bread dough you make that is sure. a sourdough or a wild yeasted dough. Um, and this is a way to preserve the mother that I found to be the most effective. Um, you can preserve it in the freezer. Uh, but this comes to life so much faster and Mm -hmm. you can regenerate it just by simply putting it in a jar and shaking it up Mm -hmm. and adding some flour and you'll have your own starter. Um, so this is sort of, uh, the fail safe plan of the bakery. (laughs) Well, basically uh, those large flakes that you see there Uh of the sourdough mother, you've dehydrated those, haven't you? I did. I dehydrated them. So another wonderful thing to do with your dehydrator. Uh, and this is a, actually a very traditional method that was used by the pioneers, for example. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, when you're having a sourdough mother, you need to keep it fed. You need to have a good, good environment. But if you're traveling, you're in a, you know, a wagon or you're on a ship or something like that, and you want to take your sourdough bread to where you're going, you may not have the ability to feed it during your travels. Mm-hmm. Travel wasn't as, quite as convenient as it is nowadays. Uh, so you would dry it out 
pack it up like this and then when you got to your destination then you could rehydrate it uh and get it make it come alive again yeah i feel yeah. whenever i carry this around i feel very much like a <laughs> yeah, right. I'm joining that tradition of keeping it safe across sure. the wildlands. But I think it's I think the travel is a really good point because even though it's more convenient today, uh -huh. I think the more and more people travel and they can go farther away and they take longer weekends or they just go during the week and I think a large deterrent to doing a lot of this home fermentation is oh my god, I'm going to have to be there at 8 p.m. or I'm going to be at 9 and then i got to touch it and move mm -hmm. it and what, all these other things or it'll die. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's hard enough to get someone to babysit your plants or your animal <laughs> or your home. Right. If you start asking your friends to babysit your ferments, right. I think you start finding out who your friends Check are. Check on my yeast. <laughs> uh, exactly. So this is a great way um, if you are uh, an avid bread baker or even a novice to sort of put it to sleep for a little mm -hmm. while. I mean, you can, if you're only gone for a couple of days, uh, if you put a mother starter into the fridge, it'll be totally fine. But let's say you got a great opportunity to go away for a month. Mm -hmm. I would highly recommend you just spread out a little of the liquid mother on a baking sheet and leave it to dry for okay. about a day. And then you can crack it up and store it like this. And this will last almost indefinitely. And come well, alive. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm gonna post pictures of this gigantic jar, at least on Twitter. Uh, it's enormous. Uh, and it's and what's also easy to give to your friends. Mm -hmm. You can even put this in an envelope and mail it to somebody, <laughs> and uh, it'll it'll work. That's we so always, cool. if anyone wants wild yeast, they can always email me at hello at redbreadbakery.com, and we make it okay. happen. Okay. I feel like it might be kind of risky to send just an envelope with yeast in it. I feel like if that got red flags, then people would be, you know, the government might be a little curious about what's going on. But well, not so far. Not so far. <laughs> I mean, there's there's companies online where you can right. buy yeast, where mm -hmm. you can buy all these microbes. It's it's a pretty uh, robust business. Mm -hmm. But like I said, I personally, I would not have these what I consider gifts if someone else had not freely given of them. Of course. So I am honored to join that tradition. Is there uh, somewhere online where people might? find like just like a glossary of terms in case somebody's listening to this podcast and might be getting a little bit lost uh i don't know if there's well i think that again uh, wikipedia is great there for you just go. Your, sort Perfect. of your base level uh sandra katz runs uh -huh. a blog and has a book wild fermentation if you really want a great intro it's cool. about 150 pages and gives a wonderful overview of the cultural mm -hmm. and historical significance as well as tons of ferments from around the world mm -hmm. um, we run a blog through the bakery that gives a lot of information cool. on how to ferment at home at low cost. Mm -hmm. Of course, if you have any questions, you can always go to the Facebook page for the Master Food Preservers of Los Angeles uh, and ask a question. Volunteers ready to answer. Sure. Uh, and we're going to remind everybody of that at the end, but we still have a few more things to go through here. I'd like to get through as much as is possible, um, but there's this jar of fermented celery. Oh, that yeah. <laughs> uh, I don't think I've ever had fermented celery before. I had never had it before I started making it. I have a fixation with trying to take foods that I don't necessarily love, mm -hmm. which include things like, I know there's still foods that I don't like. Everyone has those. No, of course, of course. <laughs> and celery, I find that most people are like, it's like, meh, forget about it, vegetable. You buy a whole head, you eat one. Right, forget about the rest. Exactly. And, yeah. So I've tried with all these vegetables that I don't find myself using um, a lot to try and ferment them and see if... Do I like them 
them in this other state. And mm -hmm. celery has come out as a clear winner. I don't think really? I would ever eat it raw. Yeah, this that's... is fabulous in a Bloody Mary. Oh, wow. <laughs> it's great uh, on a sandwich. I'm so sorry. <laughs> As you notice, the jar is only half full because I hate to say it, but my husband ate my homework. <gasps> <laughs> well, that's quite all right. Well, I think that we should all take a stab in here. So if you see the lid, these were started about almost three weeks ago. So it's not a super long ferment, okay. but uh, I did it with chai chilies and... Uh, chai chilies. Thai chilies and garlic, so um, I just want to warn you that it's spicy. <laughs> gotcha. Yeah, I see, I see that floating around in the bottom. Let's see. Oh, that's spectacular. They lose all that cellulose, but they still stay really crisp that's and they're really spicy. Oh, well, and you, it's you spicy don't mention there are tons of garlic in there too. Yeah. These are incredibly garlicky. Well, <laughs> which I'm not complaining. And yeah, no complaints there. I love, I love the garlic. That is delicious. So, this is just something that you thought to do, just because you're like, what can I ferment? I think that when you, if you, if you start expor experimenting, like you said with exploration, it's hard to stop. And it's really fun to look around and start thinking, well, what can I do with that? Or what can I do with that? And fermentation is really, again, I want to stress, the most approachable, in my opinion, mm -hmm. of the preservation techniques because, as well, you can't see, listeners, but <laughs> there are tons of jars here, and really that's all I needed. Right. And with this case, this, again, was, as Ernie said, an anaerobic fermentation. So I had it sealed. And every day I would just push it under because it's not an airlock jar mm -hmm. I would just push it under the brine um, you can get airlock jars uh, and there's a fabulous one that Ernie has um, that make things really easy just in terms of you don't have to worry necessarily mm -hmm. but I really prefer when I'm experimenting to do it in smaller size jars where I have to push it below the brine and that's important okay. because that's what keeps uh, the pathogens sort of at bay because mm -hmm. if you expose it then oxygen creates spoilage mm -hmm. um, but this way you can taste the brine every day so again right. it gives you a, a control over like oh well, it's kind of not great right now but it's getting better let's right. see and the tactile sensation of being like involved in that process is really wonderful i mm -hmm. think I, I say this with all respect you are a true pickle hipster <laughs> it's like the greatest thing i've ever been called <laughs> really because okay. i mean it as a, a very sincere compliment because it's you know you're taking things that i mean celery you know well, it's it's amazing the things that you can ferment and pickle, right. and we because of the industrialization of the food, because of the advent of refrigeration and mm -hmm. freezing, uh, people had to ferment things to preserve them, uh, because they didn't have refrigerators 150 right. years ago. But now we have refrigerators, so we just stick the cellar in the refrigerator. We don't worry about it. Yeah. Uh, but you know, 150 years ago, you'd have to be Rose, and you'd have to say, <laughs> "Well, this celery's going to go bad. I better try something with it." <laughs> Exactly. But in, in what is it? Necessity is the mother of invention. Yeah. <laughs> and and this will last for uh, for forever. <laughs> I mean. But but if you go if you look in the history, people were fermenting and pickling all these different things mm -hmm. and amazing flavors and amazing textures that we've simply lost. And you right. know, my philosophy is a pickle on every plate. They add interest and and piquancy, texture, uh, mm -hmm. texture. Uh, they harmonize um, color, all sorts of different things. Uh, so, you know, we add pickle spears now to a sandwich plate. That's common. Right. But, but before, there's all sorts of different things. Why do you... I'm sorry, go ahead. Oh, I was just going to say, you see uh, pickles oh. play a dominant role in 
many other cultures. Japan mm. is the easiest one with Sukimono. Sure. Germany, uh, France, and Italy, all of them have sort of a pickle tradition that's very prominent in their food. It's nice to mm -hmm. see that resurgence here. Yeah, Giardiniera which is the Italian garden pickle, is where you have you know, the cauliflower and the, the carrot and the onion, all these different things in there. Mm -hmm. Well, that's because you got a bunch of stuff and you're like, well, what am I going to do with it? Well, let's just pickle right. it all together. <laughs> Why do you suppose that uh, pickled cucumbers are, have become like the, the only, like the thing that's most pickled, so you know? Pickles. Yeah, exactly. I mean, they are called pickles, you know? <laughs> They're not called pickled cucumbers, but... You know, that's the most common thing that you'll see, especially in the United States. Uh, why do you think that it's that as opposed to celery, you know? Well, the history of the cucumber pickle goes all the way back to Really glad India. I just asked that question. Because uh, that's where the cucumber originally developed. Okay. Uh, and it became very common because they pickle very easily. They also rot very quickly. Without refrigeration, a cucumber that's been picked, it's going mm -hmm. three days, it's going to be you know a mushy piece of mold. Mm -hmm. So you've got to learn how to preserve them right away. Whereas some of these other more firmer vegetables like carrots and celery will last a little bit longer without uh, being pickled. Uh, in addition, uh, they're very easy to grow. They uh, tremendously uh, fecund, so you can get a lot of cucumbers from you know a very little effort. Mm -hmm. uh, the Romans uh, adopted them. They're very popular during the Roman days. But the reason I think the Americans did it was because incredibly popular with the British. Oh. Whereas some of these other nations were doing other uh, sort of vegetable pickles and, and things of that nature, the British were incredibly fans of the, the cucumber pickle. And so. Just caught on. Just kind of caught on. It's funny, I didn't know that. We don't normally like to take after the British. <laughs> yeah, right? Well, I certainly don't mind that we, we did in this case because I, I love me a pickled cucumber. Well, you but, have one right in front of you. Oh, what's happening here? What's, what are we doing now? <laughs> this is a traditional oh. fermented kosher dill pickle. Excellent. Bring uh, it on. This is one of the, the, the season's earliest. Cucumbers are just coming into season now. It was just a week ago on our farmer's market that we had the Kirby cucumber, which is your traditional okay. pickling cucumber available. This is a Persian cucumber because right. the Kirby's hadn't come out when I did this a, a few weeks ago. Um, I really like Persian cucumbers. But if you have a knife, because it's really crisp. Good. <laughs> Thank you very much. Uh, Thank you very much. Thank you. Why, thank you. Mm. Did you can these? No. That is delightful. It has a different flavor than, you know, I'm used to with, with dill. Oop. With dill pickles. I don't know, there's something different about it. Well, most of the dill pickles you're going to get in the store are made with vinegar. Okay. It's, a, it's a much faster, less expensive process for the companies to do. Right. The fermentation process uh, takes longer, mm. uh, requires more control, uh, and, so, uh, and also vulnerable to failure as well. So this, you know, Not for a master food preserver, no. <laughs> no. <laughs> Uh, but I, one of the reasons, like I said, I always start people off with sauerkraut. It's much less prone to failure. Whereas when you're making traditionally fermented cucumbers, there's a few hints and trips and tricks. Mm -hmm. uh, and occasionally even I get failure. So, um, oh, yeah. This one is not a <laughs> failure. <laughs> I think failure should not deter you because you learn... We learn from everyone. I in the beginning I tried fermenting a bunch of strawberries and it was a disaster. Fermenting strawberries. It wasn't a good idea, but it made me. <laughs> I learned a bunch At of least things. Now from you that. know, like. 
You have Everyone's to be interested in fermenting. I'm just saying you have to be bold. Yeah. And go out there and pick anything. And fermenting goes beyond just food. I mean, composting in your garden is sure. a form of fermentation. That's actually something I definitely want to talk about. I know that you were just about to start to say something. No? Okay. Uh, yeah, composting. That's pretty fascinating. And, and so how does fermenting factor, factor into composting? I mean, it's kind of a similar process. Is Gee, it, I uh, wish we had a master gardener. Uh, it's, but it's bacteria. Oh, man. What do we got? Right here. So, but it's bacteria eating away at things and creating new nutrients. Absolutely. Fer- right. Fermentation is a, is a general term uh, for all sorts of uh, different things in which bacteria are going to be eating the carbohydrates mm-hmm. uh, in a material and then converting that into various byproducts. Uh, Fermentation has uh, been with human beings since the beginning of civilization. In fact, some people think it was fermentation that got civilization going. As soon as human beings realized that they can take grain or fruit and ferment it into beer or wine, they decided to skip the hunting gathering and start growing this stuff so they can make more alcohol. So alcohol is is a variety of fermentation. Uh, Once you're making alcohol, then you get vinegar, which is again another fermentation. Uh, Lacto-fermentation, as we're talking about, probably goes Mm -hmm. to about 4,000 BC, starting in China. Uh, And there's all sorts of, then, of course, the fermentation of cheeses and yogurts uh, and other dairy products that are non-vegan. But we don't want to know about those, man. Uh, (laughs) But no, it it all factors into it. Yeah. I think it's um, just something that Ernie is saying with how um, you get beer and then you get vinegar. And there's sort of a a life cycle to these lacto-fermentations. In history as well, uh, very often you would find the bakery and the brewery right next to each other because as Mm. the grains were spent... They went from one to the other to sure. continue it. And so one of the most amazing things about fermentation is that it doesn't end at its first ferment. Okay. Um, you can use an old one to jumpstart the next one, or you can use an old ferment to start an entirely different ferment using different products. So there's really a ton of fun you can have. I love that. <laughs> in Japan, it's, it's very traditional to have a pickle company right next to a sake company. Uh-huh. Exact same theory. This is great. Now I just want to like, I, I want to travel through time. Can we do that? Is that possible? It is. It is possible actually by doing it. I mean, that's one of the wonderful things about food preservation mm-hmm. is that we are reaching back thousands or sure. tens of thousands of years in human history. And we're talking about all these different cultures. Well, you know, we, we get culture in so many different ways. We have music, art, literature. Uh, but there's only one type of culture that we get every day, and that's food culture. Mm-hmm. And if you think about the various yeah. cultures around the world... <laughs> Um, you think about you know the ones that have been around for any length of time, and at the heart of their food culture are preserved foods. Uh-huh. So the Japanese with sukimono, the Koreans with kimchi, Central America with cortido, uh, the Germans with sauerkraut, mm-hmm. uh, and all these different types of fermentations, uh, particularly, um, but you know other things as well, is at the heart of culture. And so we are reaching back into history. We're 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 with a you know. A, a bacteria-human uh, partnership that goes back uh, to the very foundations of uh, human society. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a really wonderful thing to be sort of in symbiosis with a lot of these things, to understand it and help it along. And uh-huh. in the end, I mean, it's nothing but positives. <laughs> you, sure. you put a few things in and the return is delicious, uh-huh. wonderful. Naturally preserved. <laughs> Naturally preserved, mm-hmm. more interesting than what you can find at a store. 
And what, Absolutely. What, what we don't realize is, you know, we think of bacteria, many people think of bacteria as the enemy. Right. Mm-hmm. But, and there's a very small number of bacteria uh, that are bad for us. Uh-huh. Um, vast majority of bacteria are, are neutral. Um, but there's a number of bacteria that uh, are absolutely necessary for us to live. If you were to kill all the bacteria in your body through antibiotics or something like that, you'd be a sick puppy. Sure. And which is why we talk about, you know, having probiotic things like kombucha mm-hmm. and fermented things to, to re uh, start your uh, your body, uh, but we're actually made up of an awful lot of bacteria, mm-hmm. and so to, <laughs> to realize to realize that you know we are in this symbiosis, uh, that we are working together with these good bacteria uh, to create a healthy environment. Uh, when we talk about gardening, it's talking about composting and all the bacteria and stuff. Uh, a good gardener knows that you know you want to grow your soil, you want to feed your soil. Mm-hmm. The plants, the fruits and vegetables will come later. You're growing and feeding your soil, which right. is this wonderful group of bacteria. Yeah, and now with composting becoming more of a popular thing, you know, you can find kits for it, and there are different ways to do it. I, you know, a lot of people are becoming more aware of the, you know, first there's the importance of it, but also the ease of it, and you know, just being, it'll make your life easier, just knowing like, oh, I, instead of throwing this away. And, you know, I don't, building towards a much more terrible environment, <laughs> you know, I could just compost it and break it down and, you know, it'll just give, give it a nice return and then, you know, just create the, the rich soil. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Uh, and I'm also a big fan of vermiposting as composting <laughs> with worms. With worms. Yeah, I don't know where that lies on the vegan scale. Using well, you're not eating. No, you're, you're not, not eating. You're not eating that. <laughs> but that's and that's a di- that's a different thing though, because if you're a vegan for, um, I don't want to say animal cruelty, but y- you know, using animals for to to benefit something else. It's it's just a question. I I, I don't know. I don't know where I stand stand on. Well, this. I think all I can say is I think that for someone who you know wanted when I first was starting out, I was like, I'm gonna compost. There's uh-huh. a lot of information that's very difficult, and in mm-hmm. the end, to do traditional composting, you need quite a big bin, and you mm-hmm. need quite a regular load of food that you're putting into sure. it for the temperature to be hot enough for that mm-hmm. food to start that organic materials to start break down. Mm-hmm. And most people, especially young people, mm-hmm. <laughs> or in general are not living in plots where they have room to do that and vermicomposting you can do indoors right and you're really creating an environment sort of that perfectly mimics the ground and you're just giving the earthworms um a little a little food every day in my opinion i mean we call ours squiggly university (laughs) and we have graduates all i'm saying is you can decide for yourself where you (laughs) stand on this issue absolutely but uh and I, I personally don't think I would see a problem. I mean, I've done it, actually. Uh, and I remember very vividly going to this person's house in Glendale to get worms. And it was, like, really strange. But it was like, this is where, this is the address. You know? <laughs> like, isn't, isn't it an amazing thing that when we're working with, in the garden, when we're working with food, you're growing things, you're building things, and you're sharing them in a community. You don't, you don't need factories and stuff mm-hmm. we're, we're giving each other the the products that will you know ferment vinegar that'll make kombucha that you know the worms because you know if you're doing vermiposting the right way you're gonna end up with surplus worms mm-hmm. so you want to give them away sure oh well these cost a pretty penny but probably could have uh, you got to find someone who has them I, I know that's right <laughs> yeah i've actually been thinking uh i mean 
listeners don't know this, but I mean, I'm in a building that's, you know, it's a three-story building that has, a, it has roof access. It's not nothing fancy up there, but I uh, wanted to talk to my property manager about seeing if we could do something about, you know, having some compost stuff. That's awesome. There. Uh, I have a feeling that they're going to not know what it means and then... Uh, it's like, a wonderful education it. opportunity. Sure. Yeah. I'll just be like, oh, listen to my podcast. You'll hear all about what it is. That's I think what, people don't know how many things you can compost also. Right. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, what are some things that people <laughs> don't think that they can compost? Well, beyond just food. I mean, newspapers right. can go in your compost. Mm-hmm. Then cardboard can go in your well, compost. I remember I, I had to put down layers of newspaper mm-hmm. for the this compost. But yeah. So just all, all sorts of things can be composted. Anything from a natural fiber can be composted. Mm-hmm. It may take longer to break down, but as long as it's an organic material mm-hmm. and you keep the ratio right between green and brown. Better than putting in a landfill somewhere. So. Exactly. And yeah. the return is this rich, incredibly sweet-smelling mm-hmm. soil. Like a compost bin should not smell bad. It right. will smell pungent and rich, mm-hmm. but it should not smell So bad. you could do it indoors as long as you have enough room that it, you're not going to be offended by the smell somewhere. Well, and vermicomposting tends not to have that problem, mm-hmm. and it's very contained, which is mm-hmm. why it's indoors. I would not recommend normal composting indoors. Right. Oh, yeah. No, no. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, you can buy those kits a lot of places, but go online, you know. They have them a lot, a lot there. Um, there's a few more things that we've got to take care of. Before we get to the, the breads, I feel like that's a good way to close things up. You brought this chipotle hummus. Yes. I love, I told you guys earlier, I love making hummus. It's one of my favorite things. Let's see what you got in here. Uh, chickpeas, olive oil. Oh, you were talking about um, canning, canning chickpeas. Canning chickpeas. Mm-hmm. I'm a huge fan of canning beans. Um, and I can control the quality, I control the salt, I control uh, the flavoring. Uh, and, you know, I can get them much cheaper. Uh, mm-hmm. And then can them myself so that they're ready and easy to eat. I don't have to you know wait two hours to cook them. I can just crack open a can that I've made months once before, uh, and do something great. One of the beans I always keep in my pantry is home canned garbanzo beans, so I can mm-hmm. make um, hummus whenever I want because right. I absolutely love it. And hummus, you know, lends itself to so many different flavors. You know, nowadays you see it. Uh, the major companies are putting it out there, and, and frankly, I don't really like their flavors. But yeah, you know. I, I mean, I, I've I've bought a lot of those hummuses and I really like them, but it wasn't until I started making it myself where it was like, I'm never going to buy hummus again. There's no reason to. Uh, it's just, it's so easy to make, very few ingredients. Uh, That's delicious. I, I don't need to give it to this. Uh, yeah, That's so spicy. it's just, it's chickpeas, tahini, lemon juice, uh, olive oil, garlic. Garlic. And salt. Garlic, salt. Cumin. Okay. And in this case, chipotle. In this way. All right. Yeah, and I just use like a tiny little mini food processor and it whips it right oh, up. Absolutely. That is very tasty. Great kick. Wonderful kick. I love Chipotle flavors. Oh, that is so good. Ooh, and it, it keeps on going too. <laughs> it's like you think that you've gotten all the flavor and then it's like, wait, get this. Bam, here's some more flavor. That's very good. And so you sell... This at the Farmer's Kitchen? Yes. So, okay, the Farmer's Kitchen is right... It's on Fairfax, correct? No, the farm... Oh. Well, the original farmer... The original L.A. Farmer's Market is on Fairfax on 3rd. Right. 
We're not associated with them. Oh, okay. Uh, we are associated with the Hollywood Farmer's Market. Right, okay. Which is a true traditional farmer's market so on, that's on Sundays. on Selma and, uh, and Ivar. And Ivar in we, Hollywood. Right, right uh, between the Arclight Theater, mm-hmm. Palladium Theater, Pantages. Right, and for anybody who uh, listened to the second episode with Clara Polito of Clara's Cakes, that's around where she sets up shop every other week. Have you heard of uh, Clara's Cakes? It's all vegan um, baked goods. It's this 15-year-old girl. She's adorable. And she, that's right at space 1520, so right in that area. And she's doing cakes? She, yeah, like cupcakes and stuff. I swear, the next generation of entrepreneurs are like between 13 and 9. There's a group it's of... It's crazy. There's a group of girls called the Venice Sisters in Venice who are selling handmade um, body lotions and soaps really? on their stoop a la lemonade stand. Oh, wow. And they pop up, and every time they pop up, they give all their proceeds or a large chunk to a charity that they choose every month. Oh, that's so great. And you'd think it's their parents behind it all. But if you ask them about it, they are psyched to tell you. Mm-hmm. <laughs> they know a lot, and they're like five, seven, and nine. It's how wild. Do you, it's like, how do you get started with this? You know, like, how do you come up with this idea when you're that... I mean, when I was that young, there was no way that I was going to do anything that I didn't have to do. Well, but I think... this passion, you know? Totally. And I think a lot of it also is that these, this is a generation that's growing up with access to technology, where that's they can true. inform themselves on their own, and they, they, they know the systems, they're learning the systems, and so they see that it's easy to put together. Like, mm-hmm. it's like any language, but we learned a different one when we were growing up. Right. Well, the problem for a lot of us growing up is that, you know, our parents didn't uh, do a lot of cooking or food preservation. It skips a, a generation or two. Right. Uh, and now it's coming back. And we're, we're teaching a new generation. And we have things like uh, Alice Waters Edible Schoolyard Project, which not only feeds kids uh, healthy food, school lunches, but teaches them gardening and teaches them cooking. Uh, and the idea is not that they're all going to become cooks and chefs and start little cake companies. Mm-hmm. But they'll set the foundation for healthy living, uh, sustainable living in the future. Gotcha. That's really cool. It's what, awesome. What was that one called again? Uh, Alice Waters Edible Schoolyard Project, Edible of which Schoolyard. I'm actually a big fan because my kitchen, the farmer's kitchen, feeds 280 elementary school children Monday through Friday at a local charter school that is one of only That's six so schools great. in Alice Waters Edible Schoolyard program. So they get farm fresh produce from scratch meals every day, mm-hmm. but they also get classes in gardening and classes in cooking. That is so cool. That's such a great thing. And it's a shame that there isn't more of that going on. In this country. Well, that's an entire other (laughs) educational disasters in the United States podcast. We won't get into that. This isn't that kind of show. In five parts. Yeah, exactly. Um, I I think that we can get through... What else do we have? I think just red. Uh, Explain to me, uh, Ernest, what you you brought here. This is just the Airlock Lacto-Fermentation Kit. Yes. Well... uh, And I'm going to post pictures of this on Twitter. And also, oh, there's a Twitter... Hollywood FK is for Hollywood, the, the farmer's kitchen. So, Absolutely. Yeah. Um, uh, so one of the things is I've been doing fermentation for a very long time, mm-hmm. and I was looking for you know the best uh, option for doing it. So I experimented with a lot of different things, mm-hmm. uh, mason jars, uh, German fermenting crocks for sauerkraut, Korean fermenting crocks, Chinese fermenting crocks. Um, uh, and so I learned a lot about how to do the fermentations. And so ultimately, from my experience, I built and designed my own type of fermenter using an airlock system uh, based cool. on beer brewing. Uh-huh. Uh, 
Uh, but with the particular style of jar um, and, and, a, and a couple other little uh, small changes to it, that makes for much more efficient fermentation. Uh, so that I get a, a high quality, consistent product all the mm -hmm. time without a lot of having to worry about it. For example, uh, other fermentation crocs are opaque. So you can't see what's going on inside. You mm -hmm. open them to see what's happening. You're letting in oxygen. Sure. It's That's, disrupting the process. It's disrupting the process. Yeah. You get yeast, uh, scum, or you potentially get mold, which yeast, is not scum. bad, Gross. which is a bad thing. Um, but these are glass, so you can see what's going on mm -hmm. in them. Um, the other thing is they have a very wide mouth. So unlike the mason jars, I have big die hands so it's hard for me to, <laughs> I can't get my hand into a mason jar uh -huh. but with these jars they have very wide mouth so I can easily put and stuff them with pickles or right. cucumbers or whatever I want to put in there you know whole heads of mini, mini heads of cabbage whatever sure. um, uh, and so it's very easy to access uh, and then of course they're a canning jar very thick tempered glass with, uh, um, with the airlock on top, which lets the carbon dioxide out without the oxygen getting back in. Oh, cool. So, oh, uh, awesome. and a small glass weight to Science. hold everything Love it. Uh, below. Uh, and uh, I get incredibly great results. Right, and uh, you, using those. you sell these at yes. Farmer's Kitchen? Mm -hmm. That awesome. pickle you ate was made in one of those jars. Oh. The All sauerkraut right. you ate. Behind the pickle. The sauerkraut you ate was made in a very similar jar. Oh, wow. Very cool. Yeah, so uh, is there anywhere people who aren't in Los Angeles, I mean, can do you sell these online? Or? We're going to be selling them online soon. All right. Um, but again, these are, these are great, and they do uh -huh. a very good job. And if you're going to be doing a lot of it, I kind of recommend having, having those because they're very efficient and effective mm -hmm. on the one hand. On the other hand, you know, if you don't have the money and you just want to do this, which, you know, you can't just use mason jars. Mm -hmm. You know, you got to, you, you know... If, if you're fermenting large batches too, you can just use like a massive, massive bowl as long as you mm -hmm. weight down the contents enough so the brine is above for the exact reason Ernie said. So it really depends your volume. Right. All kinds of things. Well, I use, I use versions of these sometimes for my kitchen, uh, uh, six gallons uh, mm -hmm. size. Six gallons? Six gallons. Cool. Do you ever post like videos online demonstrating how to use these things or... Uh, not currently. I'm looking. I'm looking into that, because that could be pretty a pretty useful tool. Like we were saying before, how there's videos for everything. So, yeah, get on that. <laughs> <laughs> no, that's really cool. Thank you for um, for for sharing this, and then hopefully people run out and, and buy them from you. Uh, I think we just have these. Oh, what is this? <laughs> Oh, I forgot about this. Um, if everyone has an empty glass. This yeah. is water kefir. So what is kefir? Um, so kefir can refer to either a milk kefir uh, right. or a water kefir. Is and, it a bacteria? Uh, yeah, similar to a scoby, but it okay. looks a little different. Uh, I should have brought some in. Uh, but it looks like little little granules okay. that kind of bounce around at the bottom and they can either be put in milk, in which case they will produce what you can buy at the store. Sure, so it's yeah, milk kefir that. or milk yeah. kefir or with sugar and water at home, it produces water kefir. So mm -hmm. if you're a lactose intolerant or vegan, okay. it's a great way to get the benefits of this uh, little, it's called a tabiscus is the little common name of it okay. um, without having to 
do milk. Um, it's really sure. simple and you can flavor it with a ton of things. It's a fast ferment. It takes about two days for it okay. to be totally absorbed. Obviously, it's going to depend on the volume, but I make this in about half to a gallon right now just for our own consumption. Okay. Um, and I think it's lovely. It's very light. So. All right. Well, here we go. And the thing with, the thing with kefir is, uh, again, it's a different type of bacteria. And if you get into the science of it and start to study some of it, you start thinking about thermophilic bacteria, mm -hmm. mesophilic bacteria, and that often refers to the different temperatures that the bacteria like. Um, so for example, people who are making yogurt, which can be made with vegan uh, sure. products. Mm -hmm. uh, uh, so for example, and you can use a dehydrator to ferment your uh, vegan yogurt. Okay. Um, but uh, that uh, yo uh, yogurt cultures, your uh, generally preferred temperatures around 115 degrees or so. Uh, the kefir culture prefers temperature around 98 degrees or so, which, surprisingly enough, is our own body temperature. Imagine uh, that. So uh, when you're dealing with trying to get uh, good cultures in your body and stuff, I, I recommend, you know, get as much as you can. You know, drink some vinegar, have some mm -hmm. kombucha, eat some uh, sauerkraut. Uh, but, you know, have some kefir and have some yogurt. Different bacteria are going to create a very thriving probiotic environment. Uh, and again, kefir, because it's... Um, uh, likes uh, room temperature and again it's very quick I often will do kefir in a single day just mm -hmm. 24 hours um, but it's up again it's up to you I could, my guts right now are probably just like Hooray! yay <laughs> <laughs> well I Ernie, Ernie keeps mentioning things and I'm like oh I want to tell you something uh, he threw out drinking vinegar and uh -huh. I don't know if that throws anyone out there who's listening but you can drink vinegar as part of a uh, soda that's mm -hmm. really delicious and they're traditionally called shrubs and you combine vinegar with a fruit puree or fruit syrup mm -hmm. and then add some sparkling water and you have some of the best refreshing, really good. refreshing drinks ever. It's actually becoming very popular in a lot of restaurants and bars. I know here in Los Angeles, but I think all really? around. Uh, the Villain downtown, I believe, is serving that some shrubs on That place is very interesting. Uh, a fellow MFP grad, uh, Emily Ho, is famous for her shrubs at okay. sustainablefoodworks.com. Uh, she's pretty fabulous. So I just wanted to let you know that vinegar should be drunk cool. and it's amazing. <laughs> yeah, there's uh, you know, you add a little bit of uh, vodka, a little bit of gin, a little bit of vinegar, and you have a heck of a martini. Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> or brine. And again, and again, uh, you can have, uh, you can make vinegar at home. Uh, it's a living fermentation. Mm -hmm. uh, I make tons of vinegar. Uh, I use... Uh, cheap wine uh, okay. that, that's drinkable but not terribly expensive and converted into homemade vinegar which has color and flavor unmatched to the stuff you get in the stores. The stuff you get in the stores is industrialized manufactured. It's made in about 48 hours from alcohol to vinegar in 48 hours. That doesn't let you get the development of flavor that you get in traditional fermentation mm -hmm. which will take three to four months uh, but you get incredibly complex delicious flavors. Mm -hmm whether you want to use it in your salad or right. your, your uh, alcoholic beverage. Here's, here's a question, and maybe, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but do you know why it, why it is that vinegar is such a good cleaning agent, just for like household cleaning? Well, it's an acid. Okay. Acetic acid. That's basically it. Because <laughs> that's like, everybody's just like, I'm cleaning everything with vinegar now. So it's like vinegar, you can do anything with vinegar now. I guess you know. Yeah, well, I mean, it's consume you know, it it, with everything. Most bacteria don't like vine don't like mm -hmm. vinegar. That's why we use it to preserve things. Sure. And so it you know has an acid. It'll it'll you know eat away at the fats and 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 help you clean and and kill the bacteria without you know. causing damage to your lungs. There you go. <laughs> Excellent. 
Uh, let's break some bread. Okay. <laughs> I didn't bring are, a knife. Uh, what, what do you need? Well, we can tear it off, or we can, or we can cut it. Whatever is preferable. We're all friends here. We're all friends. You can just tear so it off. So this is a beer bread that a we make bread. at our kitchen, um, and it is made Home with. beer. No, actually, we like to pull a beer from a California brewery that we like every month and highlight them by making uh, bread with their beer. So this okay. month we did Red Seal out of Fort Bragg. Okay. They have a copper ale that's really delicious. And then the other one is just a straight classic, a sourdough. Um, okay. But I really love making bread out of beer because, as I said, it's it's a very historical thing. That's mm-hmm. what, one of the things you may have sure. been doing throughout history. And all the beer's characteristics come out through it. Making bread with stout is incredible. You get this chocolatey, mm-hmm. light bread with amber ale as well. Have you um, tried making it with Golden Road Brewery? Mm-hmm. Uh, they're they're pretty new out of Glendale, and it's ex- excellent beer. And they actually have a wonderful like pub restaurant um, in like this the most industrial part of Glendale you can think of. And it's uh, they have a very big vegan menu. Um, it's, you know, it's almost half I guess you know vegan. It's really incredible. I, I went there just the other day for the first time. And then uh, is this a, just a jam? I'm sorry. Just to round things out on a sweet night note, mm-hmm. I um I brought a jam. So what's in this? This is Plum Bay, and we make it using Santa Rosa plums from the farmers here in California. Raw cane sugar, Meyer lemons, bay leaf, and vanilla bean. Okay. What's the process of just um, the basic process of, of jam of jams? That's a whole other show. Yeah, <laughs> I know. I was gonna really? say just it's the also basics? it's it's also well. To make it really, really short, generally you are... Oh, that is so good. <laughs> it's, the, it's my favorite jam right now, so thank you for that. Um, the basics of jam is you're combining fresh fruit with sugar and with an acid, traditionally mm-hmm. lemon juice, although you could use lime, but changes mm-hmm. things a little. And you want to cook that on the highest heat in mm-hmm. the widest pan you can so that you release moisture rapidly and the jam will evaporate the moisture and mm-hmm. become a gel and uh, you can tell that through a variety of tests including uh, the plate test where you put five spoons in a freezer and pull it out and test the jam hmm. it gets really long after this <laughs> but a lot of people ask me about sugar-free jams and right. honey-based jams and commercial pectin is available that will yeah. allow you and to what is pectin Pectin is found in a ton of different fruits. So is many. Is it a type of yeast? No, no, it's a well, it's a. It's a polysaccharide. Okay. As <laughs> a carbohydrate. I, I, I asked. Te- technically, it's technically it's dietary fiber. Although I wouldn't try to get my fiber out of a jam. Sure. <laughs> um, but what it is um, is is a, is a carbohydrate. Um, it begins to unwind in the cooking process. Uh, the presence of acid uh, <clears throat> neutralizes the uh, the. Uh, charge on the end of the carbohydrate so that these carbohydrates chains will now link up and create a mesh and in this mesh the liquid in the the jam will uh, connect with sugar which is uh, hydroscopic meaning that it likes water Mm -hmm. Uh, and so the sugar molecules grab onto the water molecules get caught up in this mesh of pectin and thereby creating a gel there you have it chemistry to my right It's um, very similar. Chef's coats are very similar to lab coats. <laughs> That's true. That's true. Um, it's very similar 
to bread making in that sense with gluten forming between water and flour that traps the carbon dioxide. Like mm -hmm. you, again, you're forming a net that makes something very cohesive except that you don't have a yeast or anything in this. The pectin right. is really the agent of change. Um, and most fruits are, well, many fruits, such as berries, apples, have enough pectin to gel on their own without the addition of needed pectin. Mm -hmm. um, if you wanted to lower the sugar, you would definitely have to eat, add in a commercial pectin, or okay. you could make pectin at home from apples or cranberries. Hmm. Although the cranberries are slightly more expensive way to make pectin. Sure. But one of the, one of the well, they're not a local product here in, in also. California. <laughs> Uh, the, one of the, uh, as far as you need to use sugar, you were talking about low sugar. People always want to do low sugar jams. The problem is, it's the sucrose molecules, i.e., mm -hmm. table sugar, that is that is hydroscopic, that grabs onto the water sure. molecules. So fructose, which is common in say agave, um, which would be in a vegan product, um, doesn't. It all comes in. It always comes in a syrup. You can mm -hmm. actually buy crystallized agave syrup, but it's an industrial process. And it's very hard to get. Sure. Normally, it comes in a syrup. It doesn't like to hold on to water molecules. That's why. So it's, it's a syrup. like if you want jam, you're just going to have to deal with the fact that there's sugar in it. Right. Unless <laughs> it's going mean, to be good. There are options to use commercial pectins that use another mm -hmm. chemical to create the gel, such as um, uh, calcium phosphate, but. Um, you then know, you're adding in chemicals. <laughs> right. Yeah. So we don't put any that additional pectin into our okay. jams. Um, but it is something you can do if you wanted to make something right. with a fruit that naturally didn't have enough pectin to bring it together. And I think when we're talking agave syrup and things like that, you are always welcome to experiment. But I mm -hmm. think that you should be... You encouraged should to experiment. Totally encouraged to experiment. Um, but it's really going to affect the end product, especially in terms of viscosity. Mm -hmm. You know, in my opinion, and I think you agree, a good jam should like heap on a spoon. Uh -huh. And a lot of jams you see out right now on the stores are really runny because they haven't yeah. met the gelling point or they're being made yeah. with a lot of alternative If I'm things. going to buy jam, usually it'll be from somebody at like a farmer's market where... You know, they'll, they're very proud of their jams, and it's like, there's a reason why they're probably pretty proud of this. And I, I just want to spoil something else, by the way. Uh, using commercial pectin is not necessarily a bad thing. It has mm -hmm. a lot of advantages, uh, both in flavor, texture, and it's a natural product. It's not like you're using some sort of weird chemical. Sure. They're getting it out of apple mm -hmm. cores. After the applesauce company makes all the applesauce, they have these cores left, they turn into pectin. After the Florida oh. orange companies juice all their oranges, they have all the orange peels. Orange peels are very high in pectin. They turn it into pectin, so it's not an unnatural thing, right? And has certain advantages. I did not mean by any means to make it sound like an evil thing. No, <laughs> and that's why you should experiment, <laughs> try it different ways, see what works best. Exactly. Uh, before we wrap things up, first of all, I want to thank you both for coming here and bringing all of this amazing stuff. It was really a treat, and uh, fortunately for our listeners, you can buy these things. <laughs> uh, if you know if you are in Los Angeles, you can go to the farmer's kitchen and get a lot of these things. Or and in Venice, red bread. Uh, so where is? Do you have like a storefront, or is it all you do online? We are currently in the midst of a lot of expanding, as I mentioned. Right. Uh, the bike, or as mm -hmm. we're calling it, Duke the Bitchin. We've named it after okay. Hunter S. Thompson. <laughs> Excellent. Um, we uh, do everything right now online. You can find us on www.redbreadbakery.com. Cool. We Red really try to combat the rampant waste that's in the restaurant industry uh -huh. by not doing any speculative cooking or baking. So you right. put your order together, and whatever you've ordered, we order. make a especially for you. That's and great. And we deliver in Venice. That's so cool. So check out redbreadbakery.com. Red uh, and it looks like 
uh, Hollywood. HollywoodFarmersKitchen.org. Correct. Uh, and for the, and you said that there's a Facebook page for the Master Food Preservers? Yes, uh, Facebook.com slash MFPLA. Is there also a Facebook page for Farmer's Kitchen? Yes, uh, uh, Facebook.com uh, slash HollywoodFK, which is also our Twitter handle. Twitter handle. And you can find us at Facebook.com slash TheBreadIsRed, and you get a sneak peek into our kitchen. Tons of stuff. Tons That's of fun. cool. Uh, is there anything, uh, we went over so much, and I know that at me asking you, is there anything that we didn't go over, is like, uh, yeah, there's a billion things we didn't go over. But is there anything that you wanted uh, our vegan listeners to, to know um, before we wrap things up? Just that, um, really look into food preservation. If, mm -hmm. it, if it's a type of cooking that you haven't looked into before, uh, there's a lot of wonderful ways to transfer and add flavor mm -hmm. uh, to any dish, let alone vegan dishes. Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, just imagine uh, some of these uh, fermented uh, carrots or pickles in, for example, I will. different different, <laughs> uh, different uh, you know, rice dishes uh -huh. or lentil dishes or something like that. It's going to transform your life. Absolutely. Transform your life. It will. Um, I think in closing, you know, Dernie mentioned that uh, different ferments love different temperatures, but uh -huh. I think that a vast majority of them function at room temperatures. Um, winter is definitely going to throw you a curveball, mm -hmm. but there is so much time and, again, very little equipment that you need to really start on this adventurous journey. Mm -hmm. And the reward is a ton of flavors that you may never have come in contact with but have deep history. So mm -hmm. it's a wonderful way to really reconnect with that. Um, and any food preservation is, is gonna add immediately to your daily intake in terms of variety, but also um, in a emergency situation, you are way more prepared. Absolutely, like for... you were saying, <laughs> if there's some sort of apocalyptic event, you gotta have all your stuff canned and stored. I'm just saying we get a lot of earthquakes in California. This is true. This is true. Uh, I'm more worried about the zombies. Right. <laughs> hey, I said any situation, you gotta be prepared. Uh, but and, and another thing is, uh, like you mentioned earlier, a big part of uh, the Master Food Preservers and you know is about sharing the knowledge. So, I mean, am I wrong saying that people can you know? Absolutely. Contact you guys if they have any questions or need resources. Uh, absolutely. Contact yeah. the Master Food Preservers through the mm -hmm. Facebook page, and there's more information for contacting mm -hmm. them there. The Farmer's Kitchen is a non-profit kitchen. One of our missions is an cool. educational mission, right. so we're always happy. You can email us. Uh, you can come into the kitchen, and feel free to ask questions. I'm always happy to answer them. Great. As a recent Master Food Preserver grad, I am... Congratulations. Congrats, grad. <laughs> Thank you. I am really, really excited for that portion of it because I feel that when people learn about this, they mm -hmm. get very excited, and it's wonderful to talk about something and give them some empowerment and encourage right. them. And in, uh, in my business, uh, we very much focus on education to empower our consumers and our community uh -huh. as well. So you can find a lot on the blog that we keep through the store, and I welcome anyone to email me at hello at redbreadbakery.com if they have any questions. Thank you guys so much. Uh, and just for the Master Food Preservers, when does the next uh, round of students get accepted or however you want to phrase that? Well, we'll be doing the next class uh, March of 2013, graduating okay. in June of 2013. Uh, we'll probably make an announcement in uh, December 
or January of next year. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you are interested in the program, uh, go ahead and ask more questions on the blog about the program or about the Facebook page. Uh, but the most important things for us are one, a passion for food preservation in mm-hmm. any of its forms, and a passion for volunteering in the community, particularly low resource communities. So show us that you love food preservation and show us that you love to share information and volunteer in low resource communities and you have a very good chance of getting in. And there is a ton of Master Food Preserver programs in different states, so uh-huh. this is not limited to California natives. Right. right. And actually, well, we, we're, we're starting a Master Food Preserver program in Hawaii, and oh. I will probably be teaching part of one in Guam come September. Wow. Oh, lucky bastard. Wow. So you hear that, everybody? All around the world, you two can become pickle hipsters, just like my friends here. Uh, thanks again for coming. This has been great. Thank you for having us. It's been great. Thank you.